One morning we woke up and we were walking along the beach and it was just clustered with plastic. It was absolutely everywhere. And there was an elderly couple that were walking along the beach. The elderly couple sort of waved over to us and we walked over and started chatting to them. Shocked by what we saw, we sort of decided to grab a bag and help them clean the rest of the beach. And this was my first interaction with plastic. They started saying how dangerous it is for our oceans, the true effects it actually has on the ecosystem. And the more I researched it, it actually started to make me angry. So we want to run beach cleaning events, community cleaning events. We want the whole of Australia to jump on board and help the Australian government ban single-use plastics. This is one of the most important things that we can do. That's Kieran Divisor. And this is The Proof Podcast. friends here we are again another week another episode hope you've been well for new listeners my name is simon hill i'm the host of the plant proof podcast qualified physiotherapist and am currently finishing my master's in nutrition each week on this show i sit down with cool folks from all walks of lives doctors nutritionists athletes people who have overcome chronic illness to have conversations that can help us become more mindful and conscious of the way that we live. Today's guest, Kieran Divisa, to me symbolizes hope. Hope that amidst monumental challenges that humans and the entire planet face, which many influential leaders and businesses fail to acknowledge, there are young people who care and not only care, but are dedicating their life to change. Before we jump into the episode, I wanted to briefly chat to you about nutrients of focus. Any diet poorly done can result in low levels or deficiency of vitamins or minerals, whether that is a carnivore, an omnivore, or a vegan plant-based diet. The pros of a whole food plant-based diet that you're not consuming copious amounts of animal protein, saturated fat, cholesterol, and processed foods with refined sugars, all of which no doubt increase the risk of developing many diseases and premature death. And we have the studies to show that. But there are some nutrients to focus on and to be aware of. Vitamin B12 should be supplemented by anyone following a plant-focused diet. I also recommend people supplementing with an omega-3 algae oil unless they are making a dedicated effort to get enough omega-3s in their diet per day through foods like chia seeds, hemp seeds, walnuts, and ground flaxseed. Others to consider, depending on your scenario, are vitamin D, iodine, folate, and choline. With the last three being particularly important, iodine, folate, and choline, during pregnancy to prevent fetal development issues. I'll continue to cover these in more detail on plantproof.com and at plant underscore proof on Instagram and also in my book, which will be launched in 2020. And in case you missed it, I did an announcement stating that 
I will be donating 100% of the proceeds that I receive from the book to charities that the Plant Proof community, you guys choose. Okay, time to hear from Kieran Divisa. His story hasn't been widely told yet, but I'm certain this is just the beginning for him and it certainly won't be the last time you hear his name. Let's do this. Kieran Divisa, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Thank you. Mate, it's a, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show and to be able to connect, I guess, between my China trip and my USA trip. I wasn't sure if it was going to happen, but I, I heard snippets of your story and I was very you know inspired by the small amounts that I heard and I wanted to learn more about what you your journey and what you've been through and what you're doing with Endurathon Oz. And just to be able to take the opportunity to also share that with the entire Plant Proof community. So thank you very much for making the time to be up here today. Perfect. Thank you for having me. And we were just talking then about how nice the weather is up here in Bondi. And you mentioned you haven't been up here before. I haven't. It is absolutely beautiful at the moment. So I'm pretty stoked to be up here on a good day. Yeah. And I, I know you're flying out at four o'clock or something. So hopefully you've yeah. got enough time to get down there and at least go for a quick walk. No, I definitely will. I want to to get into the nitty-gritty today of what Endurathon Oz is, but yeah. I think I think we should lay down some of your backstory and sort of go over the journey of how you arrived in this place where you first had the spark to to want to create Endurathon Oz. So maybe take us through what life was like for you as a kid, where you grew where you grew up if life was, you know, that of a typical family. And if you've always had this sort of desire to impact and and make change, positive change on the world. Yeah, perfect. Um, Yeah, so we'll start from right when I was really young. I grew up in the Yarra Valley uh, just outside of Melbourne. When I was younger, I loved the outdoors. Like you would never find me inside. I'd always be doing something outside, going for a walk in the mountains, as time went on, I used to just wander up into the mountains and get lost and then find my way back. I was just absolutely in love with nature. And when I was about eight years old, my parents split up. And I think this is where I started to get this attitude towards wanting to create a change. I remember that entire time I was just wishing that I could do something about that as any eight-year-old would. And I expressed that through my own creative ways. So I used to do a lot of uh, short stories and things like that. And I'd always find that they'd have the exact same story. It would be about a person coming from nothing and building their way up to make a huge change in the world. And as time went on, uh, I kind of got separated from it a little bit. I became super passionate about football or soccer and I wanted more than anything to be a soccer player. Now, I got into a sports school in 2013, I think it was, and I went there 
And I realized that I really, really wasn't that good at it. (laughs) So, I mean, I used to practice all the time. Um, I used to walk to school. I used to walk everywhere with a soccer ball. So I would be at my feet for almost two, three years. And when I went there, that sort of shattered me a little bit, but it guided me back onto the right path. Yeah, because you're kind of looking back on that now and you're saying it with a bit of a wry smile. But I imagine at the time that was hard to deal with as a kid. No, it was super difficult because like I think it was my second day I was at that school and we had our first match. So a bunch of kids, we didn't know each other. Um, We didn't know how to play together. And I played that game. I never, ever played another game at that school because I was too embarrassed to to show people what my skills were because, I, I mean, I wasn't bad, but I wasn't at that level that the other kids were at. So that's when I started to aspire to do something else. Now, my cousin and my uncle were diagnosed with cancer through that period of time. So how old were you at this stage? I was year 11, so 16, yeah. I remember looking a little bit more into it because I knew what cancer was, but as a kid, you don't really pay much attention to it. And as I researched more into it, I got shocked and I wanted to do something that, uh, that would actually make a difference. Now, I wasn't in the best state at that point because obviously I was getting out of soccer because I wasn't as good as I wanted to be. And at that time, I was like, well, I'm not really good at anything. So trying to work out, like, where, where do I fit in in this world and what am I going to do? Yeah, exactly right. So I was like, I'm not. And there's a lot of pressure, right? When you're 16, 17. Yeah. Now, I mean, I'm sure it's, it's, it's like this in other countries, but in Australia, that's like a time where friends, teachers, you know, yeah. parents, people are asking, like, what do you want to do? Yeah, exactly right. And I felt this weight of the, weight of the world on my shoulders trying to figure out what I was going to do. But back onto that my uncle and cousin having cancer, I wanted to do something, but I really wasn't sure because I wasn't good at a lot of things. And then I realized the one thing that I am good at is fitness. So I started thinking of ways I can raise money to uh, support the Cancer Council of Victoria, who does a lot of work in that field. And I started off thinking of just doing a fun run with the schools or doing a run around the Yarra Valley then I sort of expanded it a little bit and thought I was going to run from, from Adelaide to Melbourne. And at this point, I was still not giving up on that soccer career. So I was thinking about running the whole way with the soccer ball. Oh, wow. And, and I, for the international listeners, that's yeah. what, seven to 800 kilometers, somewhere in between yeah, that? Somewhere around that. Yeah. yeah. So um, I started thinking that. And then as time went on, I really started to get less and less confident in football. So I decided, you know what, I'm just going to cycle. I wasn't a confidence uh, cyclist. In fact, I'd only learnt to ride my bike. This is embarrassing. I only learnt to ride my bike when I was about 12 years old and I hadn't touched the bike since I learnt how to ride it. So, So what made you want to ride rather than run? Well, at the time... Do you remember Samuel Johnson? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Samuel Johnson had just finished his unicycle around Australia for cancer. And I don't know, I just put the two together and I'm like, well, why don't I cycle? It's a little bit easier than running that whole way. There's less injury, uh, that you're less likely to get an injury. Um, So I started thinking of places I could ride to or from. And I eventually came up with the idea of riding from Uluru. So Uluru to a lot of Australians is the heart of Australia. 
And as cliche as it sounds, I wanted this event to be going from the heart. So I really wanted to be pushing um, everyone to start caring about cancer and the patients and the people who have gone through it. So I signed up for the event. I created it through Cancer Council Victoria. Uh, I went to the head office numerous times and I was all signed up and it got to that point where they were like, because you're underage, we do just need uh, your parents to sign off on it. I hadn't told my parents yet. Wow. So you've been planning this. How long had you been planning that without your parents knowing what you're up to? Yeah, it would have been four four to six months. So I was like, I knew exactly what I was doing. And I was so nervous to tell my parents what I was going to do. So I was driving home in the car one day with dad, and this was probably about two, three weeks after because I like it petrified me. I, I didn't want to tell them because imagine a 16 year old kid going to their parents and going, I want to skip school for a month and a half or eight weeks and cycle across Australia. Like that would, that's just absurd to most parents. And I told dad that, and he, uh, with support, he was just like, look, that's a great idea, but why don't you just do something a little bit more local so you don't have to skip out on that period of school? And I'm a pretty stubborn guy. I have a background of Dutch and Croatian, so I know exactly how to put the law down. And I basically convinced him to do it, and then he was full board on it, and so was my mum. So dad organised probably about 90% of the things that needed to be organised. That's great to have that support. Yeah, it was incredible because, again, as a 16-year-old kid, I didn't know the ins and outs of how to Mm. organise things. And about three months went on and I was sitting at the base of Uluru and I hadn't actually trained a lot prior to the event. So I'd been doing a couple of maybe 200, 300 Ks a week, but on the trip I was doing... 700 800 k's a week so on my first day i left uluru i threw up i was like dying to the point where i didn't actually finish the set route for the day because if you go to uluru a lot of it's uphill it's slightly uphill but a lot of it's uphill so it was really really tough to run what was your mindset like after that day like how many how many days was the, the whole ride intended to be uh, it was intended to be 28 days. 28 days. Yeah. So after that first day when you were making yourself violently ill, yeah. what was going through your mind? Were you thinking, I haven't trained enough? Or were you thinking, okay, it's only going to get easier from here? I've got a pretty good mindset on that side of things. Now, I was stubborn. So I was like, I'm finishing this because this is what I want to do. I've set myself up to do it and there's no way that I'm turning back now. And I was crook. Like I thought I was going to die on that first day. And I even had a few people that were in my support crew say, look, are you going to make it? And I overheard them talking saying, we don't think it's going to get the whole way. So overhearing that, I was more determined than ever just to prove them wrong. It, these are people that I know and love. Like, don't, it wasn't a bad thing, but they were concerned for my health. Worried and about you, yeah. And, and were you raising the funds in the lead up and during? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we did a couple of small events prior, like fundraising at our soccer club and a company called Futsal Oz did it as well for us. So yeah, I got to that point where I was just determined. So the next day I actually smashed it out. A big concern for us was the road trains. 
So the road trains heading down Stewart Highway, uh, they go incredibly fast. And because I was so exhausted and I didn't actually have a lot of cycling experience on roads either, I found myself drifting in and out. So I wouldn't even notice because I'm so exhausted and I'm just so focused on getting to my destination. But you're sort of pushing into their territory almost. Yes, exactly right. Now, there was one incident, it was a couple of days in, and I actually got hit by a car. So I didn't get knocked off my bike or anything, but they hit. I hit the side of the car at the speed. They would have been probably going about 100k an hour. And I hit the side of the car with my arm and I had like a little mirror on the side of the bike. So that got knocked off and actually broke as well. We had to duct tape it back on. Um, God, you're fortunate that, I mean, it's so fortunate that you didn't come off the bike. Yeah, exactly right. You get hit by a car at speed like that. Exactly That's 60, right. 60 miles an hour, 100 kilometres an hour. Yeah. So it was just absolutely. That must have been, you know, you're centimetres, inches away from something quite catastrophic yeah exactly right and funnily enough i just had so much adrenaline that i smashed out that day and i ended up doing 200k when i was only set to do about 100 kilometers that day so i was full of it (laughs) and then as time went on obviously it got easier and easier so the more k's i got in my leg the fitter i got and i got to do you know where corn in south australia is no. no. So Quorn's Corn. Is, yeah. Like C O R N. No. Q O U R N. Okay. Yeah. There's a, there's actually a brand in um there's a plant based vegan brand in I think they're from the UK. Oh really? It's corn. Spelt similarly to that. I'm not sure if it's identical. Yeah. Anyway. There you go. <laughs> so that's a beautiful little town. But I was riding oh, we stay there that night. And the next day when I was riding my bike, there was quite a large cliff to the side of me. Now, similar story, I was riding and there was a car that was coming at speed and it was getting really close to me. I'm not sure if they were purposely doing it, but it was quite dangerous where it was happening because I had quite a lot of the other side of the road. And I was like, my heart was racing. So I kind of swerved off the road a little bit as far as I could go. And I hit a pothole and as I hit the pothole and I was going downhill, so I was going quite quickly, I got sucked into the gravel on the side and I almost went off the, off the edge. So I had quite a few close calls during You that. really wanted this though, didn't you? I did, yeah, 100%. So that was probably the scariest moment because I was looking at the edge of a cliff and surely enough about 500 well, 500 metres up the road, I ended up popping my tyre because I had just died on the gravel. So finally I got to the end of the event and my dad is incredible. He organised uh, all the schools in the local area to go to the local fitness centre and there was about 300 students and community members lining along the Warburton Trail in a guard of honour. So I cycled through there. I did a little little bit of a speech and we had a big sports day there. So I helped out with that a little bit as well. That's incredible. Yeah, so pretty awesome. So that was you sort of dipping your toes, I guess, into this area of charity and a life of sort of greater purpose than probably you'd felt before. Yes, yeah, correct. So from there, like I was pumped about life like I had all these visions of things that I wanted to do 
And I was sitting down with a close friend of mine and they're just like, that is an incredible event that you've just ran. And they sort of put me in the line of event management. So I started looking into it. I ended up emailing a school to do a diploma in event management. After a lot of hard work, I got accepted into it. But the problem was I was still in year 11. Now, my family are very, very supportive, but they wanted me to finish year 12. Like that was a goal and that's what everyone had to do. So at this point, I had already started a kind of like a failed startup, which was called Kieran Divisa Charity Events. And the idea was that I wanted to take on the world. I want to fix all the world problems, like from climate change to plastic pollution to cancer, everything. And when my parents told me no, I sort of took it on the chin and I left that charity event business behind a little bit. The furthest that I ever went with it was uh, I fed the homeless a few times. And then even one time about 3 a.m. in the morning, I woke up to head to Melbourne CBD on Christmas morning and I just left gifts next to the, next to the homeless so they'd wake up to, uh, to a nice Christmas. So as much as that makes me feel good, that was a purpose that I wanted to go on. But getting sucked into year 12 again, I just had to focus on my studies. Okay. So you went back, finished, finished school, and then how did things sort of transpire from there? Yeah, so finished year 12 and I got sucked into the world of hospitality. So I moved from Yarra Valley and I moved into the Melbourne CBD and I was working at a bar there. And working at a bar in Melbourne when you're working 12-hour shifts right up until 3 a.m. in the morning, you drink a lot. So I was drinking seven days a week. And I would be drunk seven days a week. Just to, just to get through it. Just to get through it. And also you're with your mates, yeah. like you just, like you want to party. It's the environment. Um, yeah, exactly right. So uh, I got sucked into that hardcore. Like What bar was that? Uh, it was the left bank you know, on the south bank. Okay. Yeah. So I was really sucked into it. Um, and I enjoyed it for that time. I was young. I was just doing my thing. And... It got to the point where I was always kind of leaning towards the charity events. So I wanted to do something, but whenever I tried to start something, I'd just get sucked back into it. So I could never, ever escape. Now, I went on a road trip with one of my close uh, mates and we drove all the way up to Queensland. Now, a friend of mine who helped me out with a bike ride was actually starting a company in Burley Heads. So it's PLC, Premium Lifestyle Clubs. Yeah, I know Burley Heads very well. I've been, my uh, grandparents had a place there, so I've been going up there for like the last 20, 30 years. It's such beautiful a beautiful place. Area. Yeah. yeah, I'm in love with it. And he was just opening a new gym up in Northcote. So I went and visited him when they were opening the gym and I kind of started thinking maybe this is the path I want to go down because I saw that they were changing people's lives. So people were losing 50, 60 kilos and completely transforming themselves. And in that in their own way is them changing the world in well, person by person. So some time went on and then my partner and I moved up to Queensland in the late half of 2017 to work at PLC. Now, we moved up there with only a couple of thousand dollars because we assumed that we would get a job straight away. 
And that wasn't the case. I mean, our resumes are incredible. We've got management, we've got years of experience, and we thought we'd got a job within two days like we did in Melbourne. But it took us a couple of weeks to get a job, and by that point, our funds were gone. So we're living in the back of the car for two, two to three months, and we had it really, really rough. So we'd be living off two hundred, uh, sorry, two dollars fifty a day. Even past that, even two dollars fifty. Like how, how? Break that down. What did a typical day sort of look like? It's actually a little bit embarrassing to admit. The only meal that we'd have is couscous, and if we could afford it, we would get pasta sauce to put with it to give it some flavour. So that was day in, day out. Now, I wasn't earning much money off the PLC strictly because they were into, you know, the sort of Herbalife sort of thing. So that's where you got a majority of your income. And I was always like, I love superfoods. So I wanted to push the clients onto superfoods, whole foods, everything like that. but that really affected my pocket. So I was working at a hot, at a cafe out there called Cafe D Bar as well, which is absolutely beautiful. And sometimes we'd get staff meals there. So that was sort of keeping us going a little bit. But it was a rough time because we didn't have any uh, we didn't have any food. Like couscous day in, day out. There's no nutrition in it. Like there was just nothing for us. Yeah, what was your I mean, what was your mental and your physical state like at that period of your life? It's funny because I didn't really notice this. I was working out day in, day out at PLC and I was not getting anywhere. Like I was just staying the same weight. I was always bloated and I was progressively getting uh, unfit when I was working out every single day. And I never really put it to just eating couscous because I just wasn't thinking right. It was a difficult time for us because living in the back of the car, it was summer, it was super hot, and it was just a very, very hard time. So we had this morning routine that would sort of keep us going. So every morning we'd wake up and our favourite beach is Tullabudgera Creek, which is right on the early headland. So every morning we'd wake up and we'd go watch the sunrise there, and that kept us going day in, day out. Now, one morning we woke up and we headed to Talabudra Creek and we're walking along the beach and it was just like clustered with plastic. It was absolutely everywhere. And we weren't like, Tess and I kind of looked at each other. We're like, what's going on here? And there was an elderly couple that were walking along the beach. Now, the elderly couple sort of waved over to us and we walked over and started chatting to them and shocked by what we saw we sort of decided to grab a bag and help them clean the rest of the beach and this was my first interaction with plastic pollution so they started to educate me a little bit they started saying how dangerous it is for our oceans uh the true effects it actually has on the ecosystem um and i was sort of inspired by that so we cleaned the beach pretty much to uh, pristine condition we spent hours cleaning it up And then we went to our then home, Kiri Caravan Park. I started researching into it a little bit more. And the more I researched it, it actually started to make me angry. So whenever I would walk along the beach, which you do every day in Queensland, I would notice it. It's everywhere. If you pay attention to it, Mm. any beach you go to, you're going to find loads of plastic. 
And it got to this point where it was just everywhere I went. So I decided I wanted to do something. Now, I've always had the idea of endurathonos. Like it's always been in the back of my mind ever since I finished this uh, bike ride in 2014, but I never had a real reason to act upon it. Now, Tess, Teresa, my fiancée, she knows, knew about it, and she sort of suggested it to me. And I was like, now's the time. Exactly right. So I started thinking about it and I started to plan it out. What would I do? How would I do it? Who I'm going to approach to raise money for? Where do I want the funds to go? And finally, I came up with this ultimate idea that I'm going to run, cycle and kayak 25,000 kilometres around Australia for 334 days. Now, we want to run beach cleaning events, community cleaning events. We want to do paddle outs. We want the whole of Australia to jump on board and help the Australian government ban single-use plastics. This is one of the most important things that we can do. For us, obviously, our aim is to raise $1 million, which will fund ocean cleaning technologies, fund beach cleaning events, community cleaning events, and any technology that's going to help plastic not enter our oceans in the first place. Is that going to a particular charity that you're working with? It is, yes. So... The original plan was to do it all by ourselves, but it was just proving to be too hard to set up a charity while I'm trying to do everything that I'm doing was just almost impossible. So I emailed a few charities and I never got anything back. And then one day I heard about Surfrider Australia. So intrigued by what they did, I researched them quite heavily and I was very attracted to their charity. I sent them an email and they responded within the hour and they all said they just basically just said, yep, we're on board. We want to help you change the world. So ever since then, we've been working quite closely with them and been doing a little bit for the fight, uh, fight for the bite at the moment, but we're going to go into the plastic area soon. And you, you talk about this issue being one of the largest issues that we are facing and that we as a community should be getting involved in and helping to instigate change, yeah. right? What are the consequences of perhaps turning a blind eye? If we were to do nothing, what are the consequences of plastic pollution? Maybe speak to some of the facts of the damage that is, is being caused. Yeah, of course. So for me and for anyone who knows about plastic pollution, it is up on the same scale as climate change. The only difference between the two is you can't deny plastic pollution. You go anywhere, you're going to see it. It's visible and it is creating a massive, massive problem. Now, 80% of all the oxygen in the world is, is produced by the, by the oceans from micro, microscopic plants and that sort of thing. Now, chemicals leaching from the plastic is actually killing them off. Now, NASA did a study a few years ago saying that 1% of those microscopic plants are actually dying yearly. So they take out about 30% of the carbon dioxide, uh, which is taking away from climate change and everything like that. So 1% every single year is dramatic. That is absolutely awful. Now, you look at the other facts, you've got 8 million tonnes of plastic entering the ocean every single year. 
plastic production is increasing by 40% over the next decade. You've got plastic pollution in our oceans predicted to triple within the next decade. And you've got 42,000 pieces of plastic floating in every square mile of the ocean. So we're at Bondi Beach right now. You look outside of your window, you look as far as the ocean can see, there's millions of bit of plastic floating in that ocean. And what makes it so dangerous is we can't see it. Mm, that out of sight, out of mind notion, you know, that, exactly. that makes it easy for to turn a blind eye. Exactly, so, right. right. And you talk about, was it 800 million tonnes? Yeah, uh, 8 million tonnes. Eight, sorry, 8 million tonnes, which I think I've seen you write before as equivalent to a garbage truck into the ocean every minute. Every single minute, yes, that's correct. That's crazy yeah. when you put it like that. Yeah, it's, and it's the way that it's affecting our marine life. Now, there's been studies done that show even up to 190 animals in the ocean are dying every single minute from plastic pollution. One million seabirds are dying every single year from plastic pollution. Just think of the effects that's going to happen. That's going to happen if it triples over the next decade. Yeah, what's happening to the entire ecosystem? Exactly right. So we're sort of at this prime time right now to take action. If we get to that point in ten years' time, and it has tripled in the oceans, there are going to be more disastrous effects than we could ever imagine. Now they haven't actually been researching plastic pollution for all that long. So we don't know the full effects of what's going to happen in the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. But we do know that plastic pollution is contributing to climate change in more ways than just one. We do know it's uh, contributing to ocean acidity. We do know that it's increasing at a dramatic rate. And we do know that it's affecting the human health dramatically. And we do know that we can change our habits and easily change our overall requirement for plastic. It's not like, you know, humans, we don't need plastic to live. Exactly right. So so even if, you know, some of the the facts or even if we don't we don't know the full extent of the damage, yeah. right? It's the least that we can do, understanding that there is huge potential for catastrophic damage and we actually do not rely on this. We don't need it in our life. Exactly right. So why sit back and 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 hope it doesn't affect things? Well, this is the thing. Plastic is easy and it's everywhere. So like my dream world, I'm a little bit of a visionary. My dream world is there's no plastics. There's no cl- uh, climate change. We have a completely sustainable world. Now, people are starting to act, but the fact is it's not enough. We need everyone in Australia to jump on board. Now, we're in this tough position at the moment uh, in Australia, particularly because of the recycling issues. So once we ban uh, single-use plastic, that's great. That takes out a lot of the problem because that's one of the biggest problems facing uh, the oceans and humanity today. But once we take that out, we still have recyclable plastic and we can't recycle any of it because a lot of the countries that we exported it to are starting to decline. So we're not allowed to export it to any countries anymore. Oh, there's one or two countries that are still allowing it. So we're in a very, very tough state at the moment. So it's going to be a bit of a step-by-step process. Yeah, exactly right. So in terms of your your journey that you're embarking on and you talk to 
the fact that along the way you'll be educating schools, kids, um, businesses, yep. people like that. What is the education that you'll be providing? And you know, if if someone wants to make change, what are the changes that people can make on an everyday basis? Yeah. So with our educational programs, obviously we're looking to go to 150 schools throughout the 2020 event. We will be educating schools on how to go single-use plastic free and how to eventually erase plastic out of their life. Now, we're living in a plastic society, so that is quite difficult. But we're working on a specifically designed program with Surfrider Australia, which we're really going to educate the future generations of Australia. We're also doing a little bit of a program that educates on the actual effects that it's going to have. So we're starting off with the effects that it's going to have on our oceans on future generations, and then we'll finally move on to how to cut it out. With businesses, we are looking at turning 300 businesses blue. To be classified as a blue business is to be completely single-use plastic-free. And to do that, you sort of just need a... We're focusing on hospitality venues mainly. So we're looking at them cutting out straws, plastic spoons, single-use cutlery, coffee cups and that sort of thing. So there are a lot of biodegradable companies out there that can produce these things for different hospitality venues. Yeah, and I, and I think as a consumer on the other end of that, it's it's understanding that the way that you consume, right, is is essentially, let's talk about it all the time, is voting with your dollar. So spending your money at places who are doing business in a responsible manner, yep. doing things you know right by the environment. And perhaps if they're not, but it's a place that you like to go, then then it's a matter of you know gently being able to educate these businesses to be able to provide more sustainable options. Yeah, exactly right. So we we speak of a big goal of getting 300 businesses blue around Australia, but like the realistic task is to get every single business blue and we do want the Australian government to phase out single-use plastics and eventually... Which has happened around the world, right? Uh, yeah, exactly right. The EU government, I think, recently just banned single-use plastics. So it's definitely happening. It's on the move, but... How far off do you think we are? Are you optimistic? I'm optimistic. I think if we really hit home in 2020 and we make this an Australian-wide concern, I truly believe that we'll be able to change it by 2025. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Now, the physical feats, talk to me about this Endurathon. I want to go into detail. You, you sort of just quickly described what you're doing, but I think I don't want to underestimate it. There's, you, you're going to be embarking on a journey which is taking you to some very treacherous parts of Australia. Yeah. Talk us through what you'll be doing in terms of the it's cycling, running, and kayaking, right? Yeah, that's correct. Talk us through the different legs, where where you'll be, and the training you've been doing to be able to get through this journey. Yeah, perfect. So um, obviously, as I said earlier, we're cycling, kiking and running 25,000 kilometres around Australia. Now, probably around 60 to 70% of that's going to be cycling just because it's extremely tough terrain, especially once you get into the outback. So there's no set route between running and cycling. It just depends on what I feel like on the day. There are set days that I do have for running and cycling, and that largely just depends on the distances. 
Now, I know that there are a few days where I'll be cycling up to 280 kilometers in a single day. And there are other days that I'll be running up to three marathons. So to be that fit is absolutely insane. I'm coming from zero fitness. So trying to get over that leg is really, really difficult. Now, at the moment, I'm I'm doing a marathon fairly comfortably, but to do it day in, day out, and then being able to do 120 kilometers or three marathons day in, day out, it's like this impossible feat where I don't know whether or not I'm actually going to get to that fitness. I do know because I'm very strict and I'm stubborn. I will get there, but it's going to be incredibly difficult because I can't seem to break that hump at the moment of the 40, 50 kilometer runs. Cycling, as I did the bike ride in 2014, has always been my core strength. So I've gotten back into cycling a few times over the years and I've been able to build up my fitness really, really quickly. So muscle memory is just on point with that. Now, I am kayaking the Bass Strait, one of the most dangerous stretches of ocean in the world. So I'll be kayaking that towards the end of my event. And I'll also be kayaking back to the mainland Australia as well. So for the international listeners, maybe just paint a picture of where that is in Australia and the distance. Yep. So the Bass Strait is between the sort of Melbourne, Wilson's Promontory to Tasmania. Now, there's quite a few islands in between. I don't want to say the distance because because I don't want to get it wrong. But it's a long way and it's it's quite open. Yeah, right. exactly right. So it's, I think there's an island every single day of a kayaking trip, but the 60, 70 kilometer days. Wow. Yeah. Have you, have you sort of found any inspiration from anyone else around the world that has perhaps embarked on anything similar on another continent and, and found people that you can sort of look to, for an example, from a training perspective or an even nutrition? Uh, I haven't, no. So obviously there's people that have done running and cycling and kayaking crazy distances around the world, but I've never seen someone do it all at once. I'm not sure if there is someone out there. If there is, I'm more than happy to learn about them, but I haven't been able to get any guidance on that point so far. And what's the the total duration like from from start to finish? How many days are you looking at? Uh, surrender in 34 days. 334 and you've got a support team going with you. Yeah. How, what are you doing fuel wise? Like how are you, what's your nutrition looking like at the moment? I mean, it may change very much change between now and when you actually embark on it based on what you learn and, and what you feel sort of gets you. Cause you're talking about now going from 50 kilometers up to what, 80, did you say 80? Uh, to 120. To 120, right? Three marathons. So, yeah. yeah, What what at this stage, what is your nutrition going to sort of look like? So I've been a vegetarian for quite a few years now. Now, I don't process dairy well, so I've cut dairy out of my diet for probably longer than I've been vegetarian. So the only things that I'm really consuming is honey and eggs uh, on that side of things. But I do uh, look or I am looking to go completely vegan for that duration of the event. And I think one of the biggest driving points is everyone that I've talked to, ex-members of the AIS, which is the Australian Institute of Sport, and professional athletes and people along those lines have all nailed it in my head that I need meat and dairy for the, for the duration of the event. 
And they basically have told me that I'm not going to succeed if I don't consume those foods. I like proving people. So now you've got a second motivation. Yeah, exactly right. And I mean, there's plenty of stories of people on a plant-based diet achieving ridiculous feats. Anna Weatherlake, uh, who you know personally, I believe. Yeah, well, I mean, Anna is the one that initially shot me an email yeah. with a little snippet of your story. So shout out to Anna. Thank you for that. Thank you, Anna. She sent me an article of a seven-year-old couple that ran around Australia on a completely vegan diet. Now, I know a lot of 70-year-olds and I don't think any of them would be able to do that feat. So I am looking to go completely plant-based. Have you seen Rich Roll at all before? No, I haven't. Okay, I'll, I'll share Rich's contacts with you. He's okay. He has been plant-based for, I'm going to say, somewhere between 12 and 20 years. Yep. It's a long time and he's an endurance athlete. Oh, really? And he embarks. He's, he's done some some crazy ultra endurance events. Oh, um, he's now in his 50s and yep. still, still doing it now. So I think you will more than likely draw some inspiration from what he's done for sure. Yeah, definitely. He's got a great book called Finding Ultra actually as well. Just that, yeah. Yeah. So you spoke about being vegetarian, right? Yes. Mo- all of your life, most of your life. Is that sort of what was that based upon? Was that just how your parents ate or was that a decision that you made as a child? I come from the from a family that probably eats more meat than anyone in Australia. Now, wow. I ate a lot of meat as a kid and – I think the biggest inspiration for me to turn vegetarian was I'm very level-headed. Now, if I can't kill the animal myself, which I definitely could not, like I get upset if I kill a fly, I'm one of those people. If I can't kill the animal myself, then I'm not going to eat animal products. Was that a decision that you, when did you make that decision and sort of draw that connection? I had the idea of doing it for years, like right from from when I was you know, 14, 13. But as I said, my family loved meat. So it was hard to break away with that. So as soon as I got to 18 years old and I was able to financially support my own eating habits, I was like, okay, I'm going to switch over. And how was that sort of received by your friends and your your family when you did make some changes to your diet? I still cop it from my friends and family. So they are not supportive of it at all. Like they are, but they like to pick on me a bit uh, about it. So a lot of things have happened with health, especially with my fiance Teresa. She's been battling what we think is an autoimmune disease. And I always get the same same comments from family and friends. Oh, it's the diet. It's the diet. It's the diet. So I've copped it a lot about being vegetarian. But as I've said multiple times mm. over this podcast, it just drives me more. Yeah, it's a funny one that. I mean, the like a vegetarian and a vegan diet would be very, very silly to to say it's a bulletproof. You know, no diet makes anyone completely bulletproof or completely invincible of anything. But, you know, there's so many, you spoke about autoimmune diseases, so many people have autoimmune diseases who, yeah. are, who are omnivores slamming meat. But as soon as anyone who is a vegetarian or vegan gets just even a sniffle, people yeah. are, are automatically attributing that to must be the diet, yeah. um, which can quite often be more of a, a projection of making themselves feel more content with the way that they're eating. I think so, yeah, definitely. Now, the Endurathon itself, right? Yeah. So you'll be raising money. You're raising money already now or? We won't be raising money 
for another couple of months strictly because I have so much admin work to get done before we can even start accepting money. Yeah. So along once you are able to accept money and during the race and stuff, how's that going to work? How can anyone get involved, whether they want to support, you know, through a donation or even if there's any other ways that they can support what you're doing? Yeah, of course. So obviously our biggest support factor at the moment is hitting us on social media. So if you can like our page, Endurathon Oz on Facebook, Endurathon Oz on Instagram and Snapchat and so on, that would be incredible because obviously you'll be able to keep up to date with absolutely everything everything that we're doing. As time goes on, we will be creating events through our social media as well. So you'll be able to see if we're holding an event at Bondi Beach or if we're holding an event in New South Wales, South Australia, et cetera. So social media is a big part for the moment. That's the only thing you can really do until we launch our donation page. Once we launch it, then it will be everywhere. So get behind it, share it, and let's make let's let's all work together to to help ban single use plastic in Australia. What a great outcome that would be. Thank you. So I just want to say something quickly. Obviously, single use plastic, it's a problem that's facing the whole world. Now I want to ask everyone in Australia, everyone that's listening to this podcast, I want us to change the world. This is a problem that's as big as climate change and it's also contributing to it. So let's solve this problem uh, as a whole. Well, mate, I've got to say what you're doing is nothing short of honourable at you know, you. Such, such a young age and I wish you all the best with Endurathon and the quest that you're embarking on. I'll certainly be, be watching it and, and getting the Plant Proof community behind it so i wish you all the best of luck thank you so much thanks for having me on the podcast and now i'm going to let you go down and enjoy the rest of your time in sydney down at bondi beach i can't wait cheers mate (laughs) cheers there you go friends such a genuine young man with a really rock solid mindset and intent to better the world in whatever way he can one thing's for sure I could see it in Kieran's eyes. Nothing's going to get in his way of making positive change. And I cannot wait to see how it unfolds. A pleasure to have him on the show, hold space with him, and a conversation I walked away feeling uplifted from. I hope you enjoyed it too. If you have any comments, Kieran and I would love to hear from you. The best way is to send us a direct message on Instagram or tag us in your stories. Friends, that's it for today. I hope you have a beautiful week and I'll see you in the next episode.